Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here as well. And we are continuing this morning in a series that we are going to be doing this fall from the book of Isaiah. And we come this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can. Or it will be on the screen behind me as we read the scriptures together yet again. Uh, You can open your Bible and find it there as well. But here is what I want to say just before we read. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Ponder that as we read these verses together from Isaiah chapter 6. This is a high holy um, scene in our scriptures and uh, is worthy of our, deserving of our attention this morning. So let's read together beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other, and they said to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. Say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like the terminth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so here's my question. Have you ever had an encounter with God like this? Have you ever been moved by God the way the temple was moved when the glory came, the way Isaiah was moved and began to unravel in in the presence of the Lord. Because the remedy for almost any spiritual problem is to see the Lord and to shake at what you see. To have an encounter with the glory of God and to be overwhelmed and moved by that encounter. So if you're afraid, you need to see the Lord and shake because of the glory that you see. If you're full of regret about the past or worry about the future, if you're joyless, if you do not believe No matter what your symptoms might be, this is the medicine. What we see happening to Isaiah here. Uh, But there's a particular problem. There's a particular spiritual condition that this text is really going after. Isaiah's prophecy, the book, starts with these words in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Israel does not know. They do not understand. The nation had become spiritually wayward and dull. You see that here even in in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. Their lives 
had become full of religious activity and ceremony. Listen to this sentence. They were well acquainted with spiritual things, but entirely unmoved by them. They were well acquainted with spiritual things, but had become entirely unmoved by them. They were ever hearing, but never understanding. They were seeing, but never perceiving. Now it's football season, so think Friday night lights, clear heart, you know, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose, right? The rallying cry. This is the exact opposite. This is blind eyes, dull hearts, lost. I mean, this is, this is not a rallying cry. This is a, this is a condemnation here. And the only way to recovery, when you're in that place, when you're suffering from that condition that I'm trying to describe, the only way to recovery is a moment like this. To have an encounter like this. To say, as Isaiah says here in verse 5, my eyes have seen the king. And to be moved. To begin to shake because of what you see. And so that's what we're after this morning. It's what we're asking the Lord to do with us. Uh, But if you begin to have that kind of experience, here are the three realities that you'll be confronted with or that you'll have to face. To have an experience like this, to, to have your eyes, to see with your eyes the king and his glory means that you will be, these three things, you'll be confronted in that experience by God's holiness. But secondly, not only will you have an experience of being confronted by his holiness, you'll also secondly be comforted by his mercy. And thirdly, all of that will result in you being called into his mission. Confronted by his holiness and comforted by his mercy and called into his mission. Those are the three parts of what happens to Isaiah here, but they're also the order in which it happens. And both of those things are significant. And so let's walk through the text together because really the outline just takes us right through the text. So first, the first thing that happens to Isaiah and the first thing that needs to happen to us if we're going to have an experience like Isaiah did is we have to be confronted by God's holiness. We have to be disturbed. Do you see the, te- the, the um, subtitle of this Isaiah series? We have to be disturbed out of being comfortable by the overwhelming reality of God. Verse 3, the seraphim call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now those are parallel statements there by, by this, these angelic beings. God's holiness and his glory are the same things. But let's talk about each of those words for just a minute. Because the thrice repeated description of God as holy is unique to the Bible here. Often in Hebrew, writers express superlative by doubling the words. So pure gold, if you're reading in your Old Testament scriptures and you read the phrase pure gold, probably in the Hebrew, it's just gold, gold. They double the words up to describe a superlative, or it's the same way that a preteen might say, I don't just like him, I like like him, right? (laughs) You know what I mean, right? To, To describe the feelings for a boyfriend or whatever the case might be. But this is the only place where the word is tripled. Holy, 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 the seraphim say. Because holy, that word, describes God better than any other word. And it's just a word that means this. God is absolutely unique. He is incomparable. There is no one else like him. But then the other word is glory. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And glory refers to God's weight, his gravitas. He is heavy. He's substantial. He matters. And it says that Isaiah saw the Lord, verse 1, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. These words describe God's transcendence, his otherness. He is is high 
and lifted up, not as a description of physical distance, but of quality of being. And so A.W. Tozer, who's written quite a bit about the attributes of God, he says this, forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is, listen to this, he is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. He is as high above an archangel as, as he is a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf that separates God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and separated from him as infinitude himself. So C.S. Lewis said this, he said, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know that God as that, he says, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, then you don't know God at all. Isaiah saw the Lord. He got a glimpse of his holiness and glory. And look how he responded here in verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so Tozer, again, he says, whenever God appeared to men in the Bible, the results were the same, an overwhelming sense of terror and dismay, a wrenching sensation of sinfulness and guilt. Because in the Bible, not just here, when people had a genuine encounter with God like this, they did not react casually. It was always like this. Job, the psalmist, Peter in the boat, with Jesus, Saul on the road to Tarsus, Isaiah saw the Lord. More than that, what's happening here is he, he's having an, an experience of God's overwhelming reality. The weight, the weight of God's reality is falling upon him and crushing him. And it's so overwhelming. It's so, it's so um, immeasurably superior to himself that as Isaiah begins to experience, he begins to disappear. He begins to crumble underneath the weight of it. Now, let me explain. If you know the, the principle of displacement, when you drop something in, heavy into water, then the water, has, which is of less density, is moved. It has to move because of the thing that's now of greater density that's been dropped into it. So it's displaced, this idea of, of being moved, moved by something that's heavier than yourself. Every October, we go to North Carolina and uh, one of the things we do every year as a family, we, with, with my sister and her family, we bike down this, um, this call, it's called the Virginia Creeper. It's, it's an amazing thing. You can bike for 17 miles or so. But one of the things we started to do is there are a number of bridges, and we always stop at one of the bridges, and the kids just find it fascinating to, like, go down to the bottom and find the heaviest rock that they can find and lug it up to the top and drop it off, you know, the tall bridge to see how big the splash can be, right? And, and so the bigger the heavier the rock, the bigger the splash. Because the heavier the rock, the more water it displaces, the more water it moves. And this is what's happening to Isaiah. He is the lesser reality. And so as he encounters God's greater reality, he, he's undone by it. He begins to crumble. He, he begins to be reduced to dust and ash. As Jonathan talked and prayed about a minute ago, he's undone. Aldous Huxley, who was an atheist, an atheist author, he refused to believe because he was more sensible and more tuned into reality than a lot of us are. 
he said this. He describes this initial reaction, experience. He had some preliminary experiences of God like this. It never turned to faith for him, but here's how he described it. He said it was the fear. Listen to this. This is so profound. He said it was the fear of being overwhelmed, of disintegrating under the pressure of a reality greater than me, the incompatibility of my egotism and the divine purity. And he said, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, it's so insightful. When he had encounters with God, his person, his ego, his pride began to disintegrate, and he was undone because it was a genuine spiritual reality. Now, Isaiah says, woe is me. You see that? Woe is me. I'm lost. And those words describe something that is unraveling, something that's falling apart. The overwhelming reality of God is causing Isaiah to feel his nothingness. And if you see there, well, I guess I'd change the quote there, but Tozer again said that God is everything and man is nothing is the basic tenet of Christian faith and devotion. And so let me say this to you. If you're calloused, if you're, let's just be honest, if you're less moved by spiritual things than Aldous Huxley was, the only thing that can begin to move you is the overwhelming reality of God. You have to be confronted by God's holiness and glory and have your pride and your ego and your selfishness begin to disintegrate under the pressure of his greater reality. God is holy and I am not. I have fallen woefully short of his glory and that is the problem. That's the problem. That's the starting line of faith to see God's holiness and his glory and to be confronted by the reality of your own sin and nothingness in comparison. And so Isaiah bursts out into a confession. Look there in verse five. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw his pride, his wrong motivations, his failures, the times he was a coward and didn't speak the truth, the times when he was, his, he was honest, but his honesty was too sharp and did more damage than good. He had an acute awareness of his sinfulness. And this is what makes me so nervous about the way we do church today, to be honest. American Christianity seems to engineer services and experiences for Christians to avoid Isaiah 6 moments. It's so consumeristic. We're so afraid of offending people. But here's the reality. In times of revival, we know this from history. In times of revival, when the spirit really began to come, people would come to church, and as the sermon was being given, they would moan and shriek under the conviction of sin, and the preacher would have to stop preaching and, like, help them. Can you imagine that? You guys would freak out if that happened. (laughs) You would freak out. I would freak out. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that used to happen. Annie Dillard said, churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. That's what she said. She said, we shouldn't wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should lash us to our pews. They should issue life preservers and signal flares because that's a more sensible approach to what we claim we're doing when we come here to this place. We are meeting face to face with this one who is high and lifted up, who came into the temple and the place shook. And Isaiah said, I'm falling apart because God, God is not safe, but he is good. But he is not safe. And so, A true experience like this means you're confronted by his holiness. But secondly, 
okay, take a breath, it's gonna be okay, because we're not just confronted by his holiness, but we're also comforted by his mercy. God first disturbs so that he can comfort. He is not safe, but he's good. But let me make a comment about the order here, because we need to talk about why being disturbed comes before being comforted. Because if you're unmoved by the good news of the gospel, and let's confess, so many times we are, we are unmoved by the good news of the gospel, and if that's true for you, it's because you've forgotten the bad news about your sins. And the gospel is only good news to the extent that you understand the bad news. And it will only be good news to the extent that you're aware, acutely, like aware that your sins are ever before you. So Robert Bolton, he said, a man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. He must know that he is sick before he will seek a physician. He must be cast down, confounded, condemned, and lost in himself before he will look about for a savior. Because you see, the flesh, the flesh is the sinful part of you and me that insists that God is nothing and that we are everything. And that's what has to die. That's the part that has to die, to be confronted and die before you can be amazed at God's grace. Amazed at God's grace. I love um, the William Wilberforce movie, Amazing Grace, that was done uh, a few years ago. And you know, John Newton was his pastor, and there's a scene where he goes to see uh, John Newton at the end of his life. Of course, John Newton, the slave trader who had this radical conversion experience and wrote a lot of great hymns, including Amazing Grace and and. Wilberforce goes and he and his and Newton's dying and he says this is kind of my last confession he says my memory is fading I've forgotten lots of stuff but I remember two things quite clearly I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior and Newton had Newton wrote hymns that we sing hundreds of years later because he talked about amazing grace but grace was only amazing to him because his sin was so profound. The bigger your sin, the bigger his mercy. The holiness of, of God and the glory of God undid Isaiah so that his mercy could begin to put him back together. So let's see the mercy, right? Father, help us see the mercy. And so we see here in verses 6 to 7, as soon as Isaiah makes this confession, God begins to do something about it. We read, one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, having in his hand the burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Now, we know in verse 1 that Isaiah is in the temple. All of this is happening in the temple. And the temple was the place where sinful people could meet with the holy God because it was the place where sacrifices were made. And where were the sacrifices made? On the altar. For atonement. An animal was placed on the altar and killed as a substitute for the sinner, and the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar, and God accepted the sacrifice in the place of the sinner. Their sin was atoned for by the, the, the sacrifice that was made, the payment that was made. And so this seraphim took a coal from where? Do you see it? Where, where did he take the coal from? The altar. And he put it against Isaiah's lips. And he said, <laughs> it's amazing, your guilt is gone. It has been carried off, and there's atonement. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah thought he was going to die. I mean, woe is me. Remember we talked about, woe is me. That's a funeral uh, you know, lament. Isaiah says, I'm dead. I've seen the Lord. I'm dead. He knows he should have died for his sins, but he didn't. Now, how can that be? 
Isn't that what God said back in Genesis chapter three or two and three that if if we sin, the result and payment of the penalty of sin is death. Isaiah knows he should die, but he didn't die. And how can that be? Because only because there is one who died in his place, not an animal on the altar, but the one who was the true temple, the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who centuries later, centuries later, as he hung upon the cross. He cried out, woe is me. I'm dying. I'm undone by the weight of the wrath of the holy God that's coming down upon me. And this eternal son, the beloved of the father without sin, took upon himself our sin and gave his life in the place of ours. The holy wrath of God coming down like fire to consume him. The cross of Jesus was the ultimate altar. And as he died, do you remember what happened? As he died, the whole earth shook. But here's the question. But does his death for you shake you? Are you moved by it? There are actually two gospel truths here. The first is if you put your faith in Jesus and declare him everything in yourself, nothing, then you can be atoned for. There's atonement. Now take that word apart. Look at that word and put lines at one meant. That's what that English word means. In Jesus, God and man are made one again, no longer separated from one another because of sin. The holiness of God shatters, it's true, but his mercy puts you back together. In our sin, we have lived as if God is not necessary or irreplaceable, and the result is ruin and disintegration. But in Jesus, God has re-knit our hearts with his. We can now be one with him, and the result of being made at one with God again is the healing of your whole life. Integration. Now it's slow and it's painful, but, but it's inevitable. That's what atonement means. But the second thing that we talk about here is if you put your faith in Jesus and declare him everything and yourself nothing, then the record of your guilt is taken, taken away. That's what Isaiah says. He says, do you see that? He says, your sin is atoned for, but he says, um, where is it? I can't find it. Your guilt is taken away, verse 7. It's expunged. In the Old Testament scriptures, on the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice was made. But there was a second thing that happened. The priest would also take a live goat, and he would place his hand upon the live goat and confess his sins and the sins of the people. And the symbolism there is that his sins and the sins of the people were being transferred to the goat. And then the goat was sent away into the wilderness, literally as a picture for the people of the way that God was sending their sin away from them. Isn't that amazing? And so we read the psalmist saying, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's amazing. If your faith is in Jesus, that's true. Mercy is free to us, but it's costly to God. And when you see how costly it is, and then you see God and Jesus joyfully paying the price for you, when you get a sense of how lopsided it is between you and God, and you do nothing, and he does everything, and he never tires of doing it all, when you experience the freedom of knowing that your sins are gone, that they are cast into the depths of the sea, remembered no more by God so that they can be remembered no more by you, when all of that comes into your life, it can come with such a force. It can come crashing down on you with such force that you can't help but be moved by it. It can create love and joy and gratitude. It can restart 
your stony heart. It can give you a song so sweet that you'll wish for a thousand tongues to sing. It can animate and make alive your hands to be busy serving him, and it can ready your feet to go. It can literally move you. Move you to Panama, move you to Utah, move you to Eagle Lake. And that's what we see, the third thing. So third, not only are we confronted by the holiness of God and comforted by the mercy of God, but ultimately we're called into God's mission. We see in verse 8, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. So the result of Isaiah's sin being resolved is his being called into mission. You know, it's actually very dangerous to be unamazed at something that you should be amazed at. I've not seen it. I refuse to watch it, but there's a documentary called Free Solo, uh, if you're aware of this. I'm absolutely terrified of heights, so there's no way. I would rather watch the, the, the scariest horror movie in the world than sit through. Uh, but if you know the story, it's a story about a rock climber who climbed El Capitan in Yosemite without any ropes or anchor points. He just did it, and he did it so fa- he did it faster than anybody had ever done it. And of course, I mean, he did it without anything holding him in, so if he fell, you know, that's it, like smush, like, right? I'm actually not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling to my death from heights. So, <laughs> so it's kind of that, right? Now, what's interesting about this documentary is they did, they did, they scanned his brain, and what they learned because they're trying to think, like, who is this? How does this guy do this? Because everybody else would be scared to death, and he's there's just there's no fear in him. And so they scanned his brain, and what they learned was that he had legions on certain parts of his brain that caused a condition called clover Boosie syndrome, which creates a lack of fear at fearful things. So he literally was anatomically, he's anatomically different than the rest of us, which explains how he lived his life. But see, it's possible to suffer from spiritual brain legions that cause you to be unmoved by things that should move you. I mean, grace can be just grace. We can talk about grace and not amazing grace, but unless it is amazing, it won't move you. We are meant to be moved by the terror of God's holiness and our sin, resolving into the beauty of God's mercy, literally moved. When I say moved, I mean, God said, who will go? But unless grace is amazing, you will not go. But if grace is amazing, then you'll go anywhere to anyone, anytime. And it's something like, it's kind of like this. If you, you know, if you can imagine a man in his 50s who has had pretty poor health habits for most of his life, and then he has a, an episode with his heart or, a, you know, some, a heart attack or some sort of a stroke or some kind, and then you know this happens. We, we all know people like this, and all of a sudden that, that experience completely changes his whole life. He thought he was going to die Uh, And then he didn't, and he was so, you know, this person becomes so overwhelmed, so full of joy and gratitude that he gets to go on with life that it brings a new power that he didn't have before for change. And that is, that is how the Christian life is supposed to work as well. And this is where I struggle with how honest to be here, to be honest. I, I just, I struggle with how honest to be because as I look at Christians in America, particularly in the West, There is so little urgency. There's so little willingness to sacrifice for the mission. 
And I think we could trace it back to this idea. Have you had a spiritual near-death experience that has left you different and motivated? And I think a lot of people who are populating our churches haven't. And it's the reason why there's just no energy. Because you need this. I need this. We all need this because of what comes next in the text. I mean, this is the hard part. Look what God tells Isaiah. He, said, he, t- he shows him what his ministry is going to be like, how it's going to be received by the people. He says, go. And Isaiah says, I'll go. And then the Lord says, but you need to know what it's going to be like. He said, these people I'm sending you to, uh, they're, they're going to be unmoved. They're not going to listen to you. In fact, this is the hard part. God said Isaiah's ministry would only worsen their spiritual condition, that they were spiritually dull, and his ministry would only serve to make them more dull. And Jesus, of course, quoted this portion of Isaiah to describe the deep unbelief and antagonism that so many people surrounding him uh, lived with in response to his ministry. And it's the thing that I've gotten the most questions about over all of the years of doing this. Uh, People really get confused and and concerned about, about what God is saying here. And so let me just stop for a minute and address it and say this, that God is not saying here, listen, he is not saying I'm sending you so that people won't hear. There are people who want to believe, but I don't want them to believe, and so I'm sending you to keep them from believing. No, that's not at all what God's saying here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, these people that I'm sending you to, their hearts are already hard and unbelieving. They have set themselves against me. And you're going to go, and unfortunately, all you're going is going to do is going to make that even worse. And I want to be as honest with you as I possibly can and say that it is possible to pass the point of no return, to be so intent on not hearing and believing that when you hear, all it does is make it harder for you to hear. And here's the other thing I would say. If you're more concerned about what these verses possibly say about God than what they say about you, then it's an indication of hardness in your heart already. I've always liked what C.S. Lewis said. He put it this way. He said, there are two people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. This is a warning to us that if we stubbornly refuse to hear and if we do it long enough that we might, like these people, become unhearing. Don't let that happen. But it's also a dose of reality. (laughs) This is a dose of reality about what it's like to try to reach into the human heart. Do you know what I mean by that? Like what, it's, what, what the work really is to try to, to, reach and to reach the human heart that is so hardened by sin. Steve Brown, he, he, he gives an analogy talking to pastors about what pastoral ministry is like that I, is so profound. I, I found it again this week, and, and he says this. Anyway, I'll just share it with you, but... He says, there are times, and he's a pastor, and he's talking to pastors, he said, there are times when I feel like I'm standing on the edge of a high cliff, a sheer cliff that people frequently approach. And as they approach, I say, be careful. I tell them, it's a long way down, and coming to a stop at the bottom will be quite unpleasant. And they look at me, and sometimes they even thank me, and then they jump. But I keep at it, he says. Hey, I say to the next group, that approaches the cliff. Not too long ago, I saw people go off that cliff. And if you'll bend over and look, you'll see the bloody mess they made down there. And like everybody else, they seem grateful for my concern. They may even say something about my compassion and wisdom. 
and then they jump. And it happens again and again. And listen, now this is Steve Brown being Steve Brown. Frankly, he says, I'm tired of it. In fact, I've given up standing by the stupid cliff. I'm tired of being people's mother. I'm tired of talking to people who don't want to listen. And he says, which is just another way of saying that when I determined to leave my position by the cliff, to my horror, to my surprise, I'm the one that's jumped. Now that isn't just pastoral work or missionary work. That's marriage. That's parenting. It's teaching first graders. It's friendship. You keep showing up. Even when it feels like nothing is happening, you put the work in. Even when the work doesn't seem to be working, you keep discipling and teaching your kids even when it feels like they could care less what you have to say. Even when it feels like they're doing the opposite of what you want them to do and that nothing you say is helping, it's only hurting because you do it because God is worthy. Because his words deserve to be spoken. Because the plan that he has deserves to be carried out. But you do it also because his grace is sovereign. He is always working in ways that are not obvious. The story isn't over until he says it is. And there are going to be times when you're going to want to give up. You're going to want to leave your post by the cliff and stop warning people. And Isaiah sensed this too. So he says, verse 11, he says, well, how long, O Lord? Like, surely, right? This is a short assignment. And God's response in verses 13 to 11, uh, 11 through 13 was, well, you're going to do it until there's nothing left. Until the people go into exile and it looks like the, and the cities lay in ruin and it looks like everything is over. And there's devastation in the land. But even then, that's not the end of the story. Because you've got to see the very last line of this chapter where he says, when all that is left is a stump, there's still life in the stump. Verse 13, this holy seed is its stump. And all that means is that grace will have the last word, always. You hear me? Do I need to say that again? Grace will have the last word, always. Even in judgment, God preserves a remnant and there are times in life where all that's left is a stump. But here's what we learn. From that stump, God is able, and he often does, bring about all that he's promised. It's like the hymn writer said, hold on to hope. He said this, if hope that used thy soul to cheer now leaves thee dark as night, and neither sun nor stars appear, yet wait for morning light. Still look to Christ with longing eyes, though both begin to fail. Still follow with thy feeble cries, for mercy will prevail. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, meet us at that place right there. In all of our doubting and our yearning for that to be true, for mercy to prevail. Because in so many cases, it feels like we're at that place where all that's left is a stump. And we wonder what to do. And we feel like we've failed or you failed or the mission's failed and it's all been for nothing. And what's the point of any of it? When our kids misbehave and don't believe and don't listen to our instruction and they do the very things that we as parents warn them not to do because we know what's best for them and they refuse to listen. Or when a friend 
is wayward and our hearts are breaking and there's nothing, we, we've said everything we know to say and there's nothing left to say. And what do we do then? Except to turn to you and to say, it's all up to you anyway. And to be reminded yet again of your greatness, that you are the one who is high and lifted up, seated on the throne, but also reminded of your mercy, that you are one who has a bigger heart than any other heart in this room. And we can lean into what we know to be true of you in those moments. And so help us to do that even now as we come to the, the conclusion of this service and strengthen us. Help our eyes to see you and in seeing you to be moved, to be shaken, to be awoken, to be changed so that we might be sent for the sake of your glory and for your purposes in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, would you stand with me now as we, um, as we receive the benediction? You know, that reminds me of a place in Acts where Paul and the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders who'd labored so long together uh, met before Paul was to go on toward his death. And there were tears uh, because, of, because the goodbye was, was hard. But I want to say there are tears because the goodbye is hard, but the goodbye is worth it because he is worthy. He is worthy of whatever sacrifice we have to make. And there are sacrifices that must be made. Uh, But the good news is, is that there's comfort for us as well. That there's this promise that as Jeff and Marissa and their family leave and go from us, as we are sent, as they're sent, as we're sent from this place, that we're not sent to figure it out all by ourselves. We're sent with the promise that his mercy will run after us all the days of our lives. So receive these words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give us peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.